0: Uh, UX Expert is one of the top ten user experience service provider companies in India, and Pushar is the founder and CEO of the UX Expert. He is also the director of UX UI Training Lab, which provides professional training in human computer interaction, usability, user psychology, user research, prototyping tools, and front end development in various languages. And Tushar is working towards many more courses related to UX to be launched soon. Through this platform, he is not only training people, but also provides jobs as well as entrepreneurship opportunities to his students. He is a visiting professor at Symboises Institute of Design and has given speeches at various other conferences. He has been working in this field for more than 18 years and he has worked as developer designer researcher almost every phase of product development He is a director at Amplified Reach and works as a UX consultant for various other companies He is also a founder of, of Organize My Hotel Now before I hand it over to Tushar I request you all to please keep your devices on mute and turn off your video. Thank you. Uh, so, Tushar, director. Like?
1: Thank you, Pramod. Uh, and I again, welcome, Darren, to this UX talk. Uh, we are we are talking so much now, and finally, uh, we are today we are talking on uh, this UX talk. So, before uh, Darren, you start, I will just give a few minutes about how. Uh, UX talk is what is UX talk is all about. So UX talk is basically uh, is a platform where I want the experts should come and they should speak on UX basically. And uh, this is a platform where we are giving professional for learning also, and they can be helpful in their UX career also. Okay. So I will not take much time. I think, Darren, uh, let's start with today's topic. So again, I welcome you and uh, people are still joining, but uh, we can start with because we have time. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, so I hand over to De- Darren. Please continue. Uh, we can start. Okay. Uh, we can start with a little bit about your journey first, uh, about your introduction, and then uh, we can continue on our whole today's topic. Darren, please.
2: Okay, great. Thanks Tashar and thank you for the opportunity. I'm so excited to be here today. Glad to be able to share with everyone. Thanks to everyone for taking time out of your schedule to be here on today. I'm adjusting a couple little items here. Okay, hello everybody and welcome again. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be with us on today. Uh, I'm gonna be talking about the topic as Tashar mentioned, of the four pillars of UX, there's a lot of foundational stuff here, but bear with me. We will get to the to the main portion of the conversation. It's just important to lay a a solid foundation for the topic as we go forward. A lot has already been said about introducing me. Just to to go over a couple things again. I've got actually 25 years of experience in in uh, the world of UX. Uh, I've got a master's in Information management from Syracuse University, a master's in user experience design from Kent State University. Uh, there's a picture of my, my lovely wife Angela, who's also on the line with us today. I'm glad that she's here today. Uh, and and I like sharing a little bit about f- things from a personal perspective. Instead of just talking about the business, just talking about UX, things of that nature. So I like to share a little, a few little personal tidbits. Uh, I, to the far left on the bottom, that's one of our cats, Rocky, uh, my wife and I love cats. We have four, four cats. He's, he's one of our youngest and, uh, he was pictured. He was, he was actually featured in a local humane society calendar. That's the picture that we shared over there. Uh, I am an avid photographer. You are likely to see some of my photography work out and about. Uh, we'll share that another time. Won't bore you with that today. Uh, love bicycling, actually love bicycling. I lost 100 pounds a few years ago, partially due to over 65 of it was due to bicycling. So bicycling is a, a really important part of my life. And I am an avid bowler, actually used to be a member of the Pro- Professional Bowlers Association. And there's a picture of my first sanctioned 300 up on the screen there. So just a little about me in general and now on the personal or on the professional side, I should say. Um, some of the companies I work with was, or have already been mentioned, but this is a, a pretty nice size snapshot of my professional footprint. It is not all inclusive. There are some other companies that I have been engaged with, but this gives you an idea of the breadth of my experience and where I've had the privilege of being able to operate over the course of my career. And, and as mentioned, it, it's likely that you've used something that I've designed uh, in the past, whether it's uh, a General Motors website, whether it's a Ford website, whether it's uh, work with CompuWear or Covacint that I did, products that I've worked on with Bosch. And even on a personal level, if you've ever used MyFitnessPal, you've touched on things that I've worked on before. If you've used uh, Captivate, uh, I used to be on the advisory board with Captivate before Adobe and Macromedia merged, so there's a lot of different products that I've I've had the the privilege of being a, a part of the team that helped design or or to present the user experience for those. So pretty happy, uh, I'm pretty proud about where I've had an opportunity to have served. So let's get into it uh, today. The agenda for for this talk will be presented as follows. We're going to have a, a brief introduction. And I'm going to talk about the history of of UX. Uh, It's important to understand where UX has been and what's going on today, what some of those key milestones are. And then I'm going to specifically talk about the landscape of UX today in 2020, followed by a brief definition of UX. It's important for us to level set so that we're all on the same page from a standpoint of defining what UX is. Then we're going to, that's when we start getting into the, the four pillars of UX. We will examine each of the pillars. And this is an extremely broad topic. So, what I'm going to do just to give you some insights now and help set expectations, when I start talking about the four pillars, I'm going to define each one, but I'm only going to highlight about three segments of each. There are, you're going to find out, it's, it's huge. The four pillars is extremely huge. UX is extremely huge. So we're just going to touch on certain aspects of it. And Tushar is going to talk about some things that are in store with regard to that in the future. I'm going to wrap up with a conclusion. We'll have a few closing notes and a brief recap, and we'll open up for some Q&A. So that's where we're going. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's where we're going today. So let's move forward. So here's your history of UX, and I'm going to, this tends to find a way into practically every talk that I give, because it's, there's a lot of relevance with the things that I talk about, but let's, let's start at the bottom left. For those of you that don't know, that's Donald Norman. In about 1995, Donald Norman was the first person ever to have the, the phrase user experience apply to his title he was at the time he was a user experience architect working for apple ironically most of the things that we work on today are digital but he was working on non-digital solutions he wasn't working on websites he was working on handheld uh, entertainment tools basically when he was there at apple but the first time that you see user experience mentioned from a from a professional standpoint from a title standpoint It was years before people started saying UX or UX titles became common. And as we go forth into about 1998 to 2000, what we now know as UX began to take shape. It began to gain momentum. And all of the early practitioners were either human-computer interaction folks, they were information architects, or they were interaction designers. There were no UX designers. Donald Norman was a, he was an outlier at the time. But the information architecture book was written, what known as the Polar Bear Book, was written by Louis Rosenfeld and Peter Morville. And that's, again, when the momentum started to take place. The early days of UX, the positions, the, the career paths, if you will, initially, for the most part, they existed with creative agencies, such as Ogilvy, BBDO, Wonderman, Digitas, MRM McCann, from about 2000 to 2005, the vast majority of UX positions resided at those companies. It was not until some key research was conducted and shared with the world at large by NASA and by IBM, and in that research, they shared that the ROI from from UX was just extremely it was huge it was it was astronomical for every dollar they found that a person invested in user experience the company could gain anywhere from 100 to 250 dollars in return well that research sparked a lot, quite a bit of interest and that's when you see from 2005 to 2013 the corporations found out about this roi and they wanted their piece of the pie amazon actually was already on board because they got involved with morville and the information architecture folks early on but still the the corporate world began to the the positions began to open up that that's where the 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 articles began to be published that were saying that this is the place to be this is an up and growing discipline you want to become a ux designer The UX designer, that phrase started to become more more normative over the course of that time, and a huge employment explosion, taking us to 2014. In 2014, now you have this huge explosion. UX positions are popping up everywhere, not just in the creative agencies, but also in in standard corporate spaces all over the world, and just plentiful. Positions are plentiful, Uh, but that didn't come without its hazards while positions became more plentiful, the understanding of UX did not parallel that growth. And that is, brings us to where we are now. From 2015 to 2020, a lot of things started to take place in the UX world. And it brings about what I refer to as the wild wild west of UX. This is what is going on today. You have many companies that are engaging in UX. That's a good thing in general. But there's a lot of misinformation that's being spread due to a lack of UX maturity. People who get involved in UX but don't really understand what's going on. UX maturity levels are lagging behind. Design thinking started becoming popular. It existed prior to that. Uh, prior to 2015 to 2020, but it started becoming a lot more popular in the last five years. You have the rise of the product designer. Those positions are very plentiful today. And coining a phrase that I heard someone else mentioned, UX is being redefined in many circles and actually to match people's inexperience. So that, that is an issue that I will address today we'll explain sort of, again, laying the foundation for why we're talking about the four pillars of UX. And the foundational tenets, which is just another phrase I use to describe the four pillars, either have been abandoned or are being abandoned. So this is something that we really need to be aware of and be careful about today. So in short, and I've been talking about this for years on social media, UX is actually under siege. And the, the, the list that I just presented helped to, to make those things a bit clear. we have some issues because of the redefining of UX. We have issues because there's a lack of UX maturity. But UX is still going forward. It's still the place to be. It's still a phenomenal discipline. We just need to make sure that we're navigating things properly. So in light of all the things that I just mentioned, all the issues. What should we do? What, what, what should we do in response to these challenges? If you're new to UX and you, you see the list that I just presented and you're going, wow, those things are going on. How in the world do I handle this? Somebody might be a new UX professional and you're trying to figure out what you can do to grow, what you can do to further your career, to, to make a solid career path. And Or you may be someone who's been around for a while, and somebody like me, and you actually run into some problems even when, you, when you've been in the field for 20 plus years. And so the question then is, what do we do in response to these things? What is my personal call to action in light of today's challenges, the direction, and the state of the world of UX? So here's my proposition. My proposition is that we need to return to something that I I now call the cycle of excellence. And someone may wonder, what what is the cycle of excellence? Can you explain that? Oh, yeah, of course, sure. Think about it for a moment. No matter what field a person is working in, whether a person is an architect, a computer programmer, a, uh, a visual designer. Maybe you're a construction worker, a doctor, a cook. It doesn't matter what profession a person is in. A cycle of excellence exists inside of every discipline. It does not matter who you are. That cycle of excellence involves what the best practices are. The cycle of excellence involves what the different governing principles are the best way to do the work, the path that any new person should take when they're becoming involved in in whatever that discipline might be. And UX has, it has actually been estranged from the cycle of excellence. And so that's one of the reasons I'm proposing it. We have standards, we have best practices, we have things that in the beginning were things that many of us who who started out some years ago always embraced. But again, as stated, we've gotten away from the cycle of excellence. So my proposition is that we return to it. It's time to look at what UX, how it was established, what the initial practices were, because they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't lost their value. It's just that people aren't learning them. So if we return to the cycle of excellence, and we strengthen ourselves there, and we embrace the skill and the knowledge needed to excel at that level, and we continue to build on it, continue to maintain it, we're going to be in fantastic shape. So hence, what we need to do is embrace the the definition from the beginning. Let, let's, let's embrace this cycle of excellence by looking at the definitions, looking at what those different factors are, and then examining ourselves in accordance with it. And we'll get into that and we'll, we'll, revive, we'll, we'll, we'll review that again for you later on. So in getting started, what is UX? I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have been in conversations before where someone asks you, you mentioned that you are a UX professional, or maybe you're somebody who's just curious about UX. And the question of what is UX always comes up. And a lot of us who have been practitioners for a while, it's not nobody's exempt from this. At some point in time in our career, we would struggle to answer this question. So what I want to do is address it a little bit here. So what is UX? Uh, Well, first, let's talk about what it's not. UX is thought of by many people to focus simply on making things look good, aesthetics. A lot of people think that UX is UI, but it actually is not. And one of the things you're going to see here is that that UI is actually a subset of UX. It's one of the things that we concern ourselves with, but that's not all that, that UX is. We're going to find out that UX is not just one thing. Uh, when, when you say UX, anytime somebody says that, it's always addressing or referring to a broad set of disciplines, methods, methodologies, deliverables, things like that. It, it's a way to sum up what we do. It's not design thinking. Uh, as mentioned, design thinking has become popular over the last few years. Um, it, it's not actually what it started out to be, but a lot of people think that UX and design thinking are synonymous, and they're actually they're not. It's, it's a subset. Uh, and and really is only going to bring value if it's done correctly. Lastly, UX is not UX if it doesn't include insights from actual users. So UX research, that's part of that. Making sure to understand what mental models are and, and applying those accordingly. These things are all important. Important to understand that these things are not UX. So simply put, what is UX? UX basically refers to the discipline or set of disciplines that a UX professional embraces and employs to find the sweet spot. Look at the Venn diagram that we have here. The sweet spot between user needs on the top, your business goals on the left, and constraints. And not, not just technological constraints, but it could be political it could be financial, financial, it could be time constraints. So UX finds the sweet spot between the three. We can't just pursue user needs and ignore the business goals. We can't pursue business goals and ignore the user needs. We can't employ or focus on user and business goals and ignore the constraints. So the UX professional, again, employs everything at our disposal from a methods and methodology standpoint to try to achieve that sweet spot for whatever initiative it is that we're working on. So I always share this. This is where the four pillars of UX came from. This is the illustration. I actually call this illustration the landscape of UX, but it includes each of the pillars, information architecture, heuristics and usability, research and interface and interaction design and accompanying each one of these pillars, you have a lot of subsets. You have a lot of methods, methodologies, deliverables, and then there are some outliers, and and there's definitely overlap across each of these pillars. But this illustration is meant to, to show people what UX really is and the different elements that are at our disposal to get our job done. So if we define UX and look at it from this broader perspective and then examine, understand each one of these and put them to use based on whatever initiative we're working on, we're able to get a lot more done. And when we embrace these, we're able to, to walk in that cycle of excellence that we talked about a few minutes ago. And we'll talk about it in more detail as we go forward. So just pulling each one of these pillars out before we spend some time talking about each one individually. Again, you have heuristics and usability. I grouped them together. You can't do one without the other. Information architecture, UX research, and interaction and interface design. So there's your UI in, in the fourth pillar. But again, it's just part of UX. So let's take a look at each one of these. I'm gonna share with you a definition for each one. And then after we talk about the definition, I want to share three examples of each so that we can understand what each consists of. So heuristics and usability, basically heuristics is referred to or is made up of proven principles, things that we have learned to be true across several different initiatives best practices and common convention. So we have proven principles in the world of UX. We have things that we have found to be best practices. And there are different types of executions that we see over and over and over again that people have come to expect and people have come to understand. And when you put the three of them together, you can't separate them because common convention might not be a proven principle. And a common convention might not be a best practice. And so when you have a common convention, for example, years ago, Apple used to use the gray the gray font on the white background and a lot of people hated it. And they did it from a style perspective and it looked nice in general, but there were contrast issues. If you go to the apple.com website today, you will not see that gray text on the white background anymore. So it was, but while it was a common convention, Well, they actually started it. A lot of other people started following suit. And they said, well, Apple does it like this. And so they started using gray text on a white background. That's when it became common convention. But that common convention was not really a best practice because of the contrast issues. And it wasn't a proven principle, because if you tested it, you would find out that people had difficulty reading it. So it's important to understand that a heuristic encompasses all three. It employs all three of these elements. Heuristics basically serve as an, uh, an economical way to attain insights and guidance for design efforts. So, and I actually have two examples. The, the first most widely published list of heuristics that was created by Jacob Nielsen back in the early 90s, and he gave us 10 guidelines all the way to, to one of the more recent heuristic guidelines, set of guidelines, which was created by Abby Covert and the folks from the Understanding Group. And they listed out findable, accessible, clear, communicative, useful, credible, controllable, valuable, learnable, and delightful. And they, then they have a list of guidelines under each one. And this, this poster is available online for viewing. You won't be able to read it here, but you can get a copy of it, a digital copy of it, and, and take a look at it in more detail. These heuristics provide you a way to look at your designs, to examine your designs based on the guidelines and the factors that are listed. And and I'm going to share some some other things with you that, that show the importance of heuristics. But before we do that, just to cover these notes, heuristics, we need to understand that they're not subjective. I was working on a project once where someone said, Well, I don't think we should do it this way because I like. X. I like this color. When that person said that, that that's a subjective uh, subjective uh, aspect of input. It, it's how that individual felt, and and it's important to understand that heuristics are not subjective. We could not change the color because one person wanted the color that way. But as UX professionals, we need to understand as well that we cannot make decisions based on what we like from a personal perspective, heuristics, again, are based on proven principles, best practices, and common conventions. Once subjectivity comes into play, all three of those are going to be abandoned, pretty much. So we need to understand heuristics are not subjective. It's it's based on a broader set of information and data and not just, not just how an individual feels. And for those of you that might be wondering, heuristics is related to research because the proven principles, the best practices, and the common convention are things that we identified during research. So I mentioned overlap a little bit earlier. There's an example of, of the overlap. So again, heuristics are not subjective. It's based on data that we obtain. Heuristic guidelines, basically, they, they serve as a point of reference. They, they help to, they help us to understand how we should proceed with a the design. They help us, to give us insights as to whether or not we're going the right direction in a design. So the more we know about heuristics, the better we can evaluate our work even during the initial part of the design process which is going to save teams a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of headaches. Heuristics can be used to gauge usability and here's the overlap between heuristics and usability. You know how usable a site is because of how heuristically sound it is. So The more that we understand about heuristics, the more we can understand and and identify to judge whether or not the usability is sound or not. And there's one element that's not in this presentation that I'll mention. Something I refer to as the, as the personal heuristic repository. Each individual, each individual UX professional has a, we have an individual maturity level, a UX maturity level and we also have an individual, a personal heuristic repository. What I mean by that is, we all have a certain amount of knowledge about heuristics. We know what is and is not acceptable. We know what is and is not correct through research that we've conducted, through things that we've studied, through things that we've learned. So we can, it varies from person to person what that personal Uh, heuristic repository uh, level uh, is, But we all have it. And so the more that we learn individually, the larger our personal heuristic repository is, and and the more that we can exercise this part of of the pillars. Lastly here, beyond heuristics, and I mentioned this a moment ago, research can and should be conducted to confirm the level of usability. And we're going to actually speak about that in a moment. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. Usability, the other side of this first pillar revolves around three things, according to the ISO folks, the International Standards Organization. Usability is about effectiveness of a design. How effective is it really? Either you know because of heuristics or you're going to research to confirm, hence usability testing. Um, We don't know sometimes how effective something is, so we'll conduct research to prove that. How efficient is it? Either you're going to know through heuristics, or you are going to to prove it out through research, whether it's through a, a research initiative or something that you're doing from a research standpoint that is ongoing, say, with something like Session Cam, where you can put code on your website or in your mobile app, and then you can look at recordings to see how effective or how efficient something is. And then satisfaction. This is another key aspect of usability because we don't know how satisfied users are. So research comes into play because we can watch people to find out how satisfied they are, how delighted they are with an experience, or we can look at research over time to confirm. But these are the three key elements associated with usability. We need to make sure that we're aware of them, that we pay attention to them. And that leads us to the last point. And this is almost jumped ahead of myself there, but this is really important. This is reflective of an illustration that was done by Jacob Nielsen years ago, where they stated that you could put, you could have five different UX professionals perform a heuristic evaluation, also known as an expert review or a usability audit and they could find anywhere from 70 to 80% of the problems with any design initiative. The thought was that if you had 10, that you could find almost 90%. This goes back to that personal heuristic repository. You don't have to have five people, and you don't have to have 10. It's, if you have five people, and they're all juniors, you may not get close to 80%. Or so in this case, 70% is what we've got here illustrated in, in this image. The amount of findings, the volume of findings, is going to be dependent upon the skill level and the expertise that each one of those people has. So you put them together, and then you're going to find X amount of issues with the design. What's key to know here is that the maximum that experts say that you're going to be able to find through a heuristic analysis Is just under 90%. So research will always be needed if you're going to fill that gap, whether it's from 70 to 100 or whether it's from 90 to 100. But it's important to to know and understand at that point. So please know and said those things really to say this heuristics might be a good economical way. And sometimes you will have no choice but to rely upon heuristics when you're doing a design. But It's not meant to be a substitute for usability testing. Always make sure, even if it's just guerrilla testing, where you just perform really quick and dirty types of of research, testing with people to get information that's not very formal and it's done, could be done in a coffee shop, could be done in the office with some users, could be done with family, whatever it is. Uh, Guerrilla testing is something that can be quick and dirty, but even if you have to do that, it's important to try to supplement your heuristic Efforts with some form of of research usability testing. So, lastly, it will not overcome bias if, if anybody who's doing the work, the heuristic work, is not managing their personal bias, then the data that's involved in the heuristic analysis is going to be tainted. So, if they have a lower personal UX maturity level or a low personal heuristic repository, a small one then they're not going to be able to to manage their bias and then the data is going to be, uh, it's not going to be trustworthy. So it's important to understand these cons associated with heuristics. But that makes up the first pillar, heuristics and usability. uh, usability. I'm sorry, no, there is another one. There is another one. Error mitigation. No, the first of the examples, I'm sorry. The first of the examples is error mitigation. Error mitigation is, it basically involves an experience the way that you design that helps prevent user error. There, there will always be error. There's, we can't We can't escape error. It's something that's going to come up. But if we take the time to design and identify where the errors might be, if we would leave things status quo, we can actually change an experience to bring the potential for error. We can reduce it. We can optimize it. So the UX professional, one of the things that we do is that we identify, we foresee that a person is going to have an issue with this part of the design, and then we will change it so that people don't have these errors. So we can examples will be providing suggestions for data entry in a form, making sure that we design the labels and nomenclatures so that we people expect but we we match their mental models based on the way that we name things. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit. We make sure that we use common conventions so that people don't have to spend a lot of time trying to learn how to use your solution. And we can include strong cues in an experience so we're not tapping into a person's memory. We don't We don't want people to use their memory. We want things to be as intuitive as they can possibly be. So that's basically it for error mitigation. The next example is contrast. I talked, I mentioned contrast briefly. This gets into the weeds a little bit more. Contrast involves optimizing the appearance of content on a screen so that the foreground and the background, the combination of the two, actually optimize the way that the person is able to view something, able to read something. And I've got a, a, an image here coming from Web AIM. They have a contrast checker, if you're not familiar with it, and the URL is here, and it's something that we can share out later. But you can actually plug in on that site, and this is, this is the way that it works on their site. You plug in the foreground color, you plug in the background color, and then you get a score that lets you know if that, that combination of foreground and background, if it actually passes the, the AA and AAA accessibility ratings or standards. And so if it works, then you can use that combination. If the score is low, in this example is 8.25 to 1, if you use, say, uh, take some time, put that gray and white in that I talked about, the gray foreground and the white background, and you'll see that the contrast ratio drops dramatically. And you have to be careful. It's not all grays, but some grays should not be used with a white background. It, It takes away from from readability dramatically. So your examples, text plus the background color combinations, and even white space, the the way that you use white space, some people don't like white space, but white space is actually our friend. And the way that you use white space, it can serve as a foundational way to help create contrast between your elements on the screen. So that is another heuristics and usability element that we need to be aware of. The last example is cognitive load. This is something that a lot of people who might be newer to UX are not familiar with. It does involve it's a it's a psychological element, it's a behavioral element. It, it's basically engaged with or, or focused on the amount of thinking energy, the amount of effort that a user has to to engage with, to employ in order to make decisions, in order to process what you have put on the screen before them. If information is difficult to find then the cognitive load is heavy. If the information that was uh, like, think about Amazon. When you go to Amazon, you'll be on the site and maybe you were on the site three days ago. They will display the last thing that you ordered. They'll display the last thing that you looked at because even though you haven't been at the site for three days, picking up where you left off could be key. So that's one of the reasons that Amazon decides to display previously viewed or purchased items to help with your cognition. It, it, it accelerates and it optimizes your decision-making, your thinking, and so it's like uh, they take the effort out of your, your work on the site and the reason why you might be there, and that helps to facilitate the light for users. You wanna make sure that task flows are clear to follow and to repeat or to replicate. You want to make sure that you're anticipating and displaying popular calls to action, the links to important information so that you're helping a person along in their journey. And if you're designing a dashboard, the purpose of a dashboard is to surface critical information, to make things that are important easy to find, and and maybe a person, it will help a person want to go into that section even deeper. Or if they look at a dashboard, maybe they have all the information that they need and now that helps them make decisions and it can help them plan their day. So cognitive load is is critical. It's important for us to understand that. Information architecture now, let's dive into pillar number two. By definition, information architecture is focused on three key things. The first two contribute to the third And then there's another element that they all support, basically. So information architecture is basically about nomenclature, taxonomies, and something that we call an information set. Nomenclature, which we're going to talk about in detail, might as well just dive into that here. Nomenclature is basically, it involves the name or the label that's used in an experience. So words used in a navigational scheme, paragraph headings or subheadings, labels on tabs, and even a call to action are different types of nomenclature. And as you can see here in this delta.com experience, you have the logo on the upper left. You have book, check-in, my trips, flight status, travel info, sky miles. Do you need help? Things of this nature. All of these things help to support cognition that we talked about in usability, and heuristics but they also set strong information sense so the person knows if i came i just want to see my upcoming trip then you know exactly where to go if you want to look and check and see if your if your flight has been delayed or not you know exactly where to go if you want to book a flight you know exactly where to go and what to do really strong information architecture here really fantastic labels and it really helps to optimize the user experience when these things are in place. The next point, taxonomies. Taxonomies has to do with how things are grouped, and this can make or break the user experience. The the categories in a navigational scheme, look at the U-Haul site here, under boxes and packing supplies, they make sure to put all the information that a person would expect to find under that category in that area. So they're they're optimizing findability. That's the element that all these things revolve around. They make sure that the person, it matches the mental models. If you're moving from one place to another and you need to find certain supplies, certain things to help you out, maybe you want to see what's available, you want to see what the pricing is, maybe you even want to order something on the site. The strength of the information architecture is going to support that totally. So other examples would be the Dewey Decimal System. We've all used libraries before, or at some point in our life, that's really uh, a taxonomy that helps us define things from a hardware standpoint in, in a library. If you go into a grocery store, the way that the aisles are organized is another example of information architecture, another non-digital example, too. But those things are key, and it shows how, fine, how critical findability is. And that other point information sense. Uh, it, it was It was discovered that humans search for information the same way that animals hunt for food, and animals hunt for food based on a scent. So if we, in our information architecture, establish a strong information scent, then we help people to be able to find what they're looking for quickly and easily. The third example of information architecture that we want to share is called faceting. And fastening involves the ability to pare down search results or the content that's on a page based on certain requirements or different criteria that you that you select on a page. And in this example from Best Buy, I actually selected 65-inch TVs, but you can pare down the results based on the ability to be able to pick it up at the store that day. I live in Southfield, by the way. The brand of TV, if you want to look for a specific brand, then you can select that brand and only display that brand. And you can select the TV type, whether it's a smart or LED. You can select a price range if you only want to buy TVs. You have a budget and you only want to buy TVs within a certain budget. You can specify the minimum and the maximum, or you can select a range. And so this is faceting. You can see at the top, it's called a filter at that point, the way they listed here. You won't see the term faceting used in experiences, but it allows you to, after you've selected something, you can also remove it later. So this is faceting. This is an overlooked part of information architecture, but it is key. And again, it helps strengthen the information sense and it helps optimize findability. So that is pillar number two. For pillar number three, we have UX research. Research is basically used to validate design direction and helps us to understand what the user needs tr- uh, truly are. Users tend to say one thing and do another. And so the research wing of the pillars really helps, to, t- helps us to, to strengthen our resolve. It helps, it helps us not to waste time. It helps us to understand the direction that we're headed because UX research basically provides us a a way to secure reliable, trustworthy, and actionable data, data that will help direct us so that we know exactly what we need to do so we can make the right design decisions and apply the correct UX strategy. And and it's important to know, there are actually over 95 different types of UX research. So this is a really broad arena, uh, but if that, if you, feel a little overwhelmed hearing that number, it's important to know and understand that only about eight to 12 get used regularly. Uh, more than eight to 12 get used, but only about eight to 12 get used on a pretty regular basis in, in the UX research world. Some people will use more, uh, but for the most part, that, that's the number that you will see in most environments. It's key to understand, I haven't been talking about these notes pretty much throughout the talk, this morning but or well, this evening for you. But uh, here I do need to mention UX research is really important because a lot of times when the team comes together, when the stakeholders, when your clients come together, there's usually a lot of dispute about what direction to go. It's important to understand that UX research can be used to help manage that. If you're dealing with a lot of bias, if you're dealing with genius design, and for those of you not familiar with hip, what a hippo is, HIPPO is an acronym. It means the highest paid person's opinion. A lot of times the highest paid person uh, makes a statement and everybody wants to gravitate in that direction. UX professionals, we're not order takers. So, So we want to even subject what a HIPPO's opinion is to research so that we can present the data. Even if they don't listen to us, it's still important that we present data so that people can look at what the HIPPO had to say in proper light, and yes, research can be used to obtain quantitative data data or qualitative data, and quantitative is usually about what people are doing, but qualitative data is help us qualitative research helps us to understand why they're doing it. It gets more into the weeds and gets to detail. Quantitative is more about numbers and qualitative is more about a lot of detailed uh, elements associated with the whys among users. Users have a tendency to say one thing and do another. It's it's very important for us to know and understand that. The average stakeholder does tend to do things, then tend to make decisions based on bias or personal preferences. And so we have to manage that as well. Research will again, help us to get by these things, will help us to be more structured and to be more excellent and bring value. Uh, A lot of times we're working with people that don't even understand what UX is in general, so when we can conduct research and bring value, it will help them to understand and help them to adopt and embrace UX as a whole. So by the way, of the three examples, card sorting is one. Uh, This has overlap with information architecture. With card sorting, you can actually have a person put together different categories or you can actually put together the categories and ask them to place things where they, where they feel it should go. But this can help to validate, help you to understand how an information architecture should be set up. Just by establishing a sorting a card sorting session on a new site, for example, or if you're redesigning the information architecture on an existing site, you could use a solution like like optimal and, and optimal. Uh, check, them, check them out. They have a lot of fantastic research tools that are available, and card sorting is one of the ones that they're most known for. And so you don't have to be in person to conduct this. It can be done remotely, and it helps, again, to help you. It helps to support the optimization of your information architecture initiatives. The second example is contextual inquiry, and contextual inquiry, not to be confused with, with ethnography, Uh, is where you observe people in their natural working environments, but you're almost in a sense interviewing them throughout the course of the work day. So when this is taking place, you could be examining the details of a process in a specific application. You could be studying a day in the life of how somebody works and then periodically asking them questions to, to confirm or give you better understanding about what's going on or why they did or did not do a particular thing, or maybe you're trying to understand certain pain points in their in their applications or challenges that they're facing. And then lastly, from an example perspective here, maybe you just want to observe how, how well multiple sources are working uh, with regard to some of the goals that they have and the activities that they're conducting throughout the day. But this is basically where you're observing people, you're studying them. It's usually only one person at a time. If you do this, try to do it too fast, speaking to the brevity point in that fourth bullet under notes, if you try to do it too fast, there is going to be error. This is something that you have to be involved in for the long haul. It could be a day, it could be three, four or five days, but you can't do it no matter how you choose to approach it. It can't be done too fast or you're going to miss something. So it's it's important to know that this is a pretty intensive and immersive exercise. Then we have, forgot to put the title on that, but we're talking about the the use of heat mapping here, eye tracking in particular, is what this is focused on. And when when you're using eye tracking, this actually is reflective of the recording and the study. You have devices, a, a company called Tobii, T-O-B-I-I, is known for, for their solutions in this arena. And they have devices that can track where a person's eye is moving on the screen, what they're looking at for extended periods of time versus shorter periods of time. And you can generate a gaze map that shows where they're looking so you can understand what's garnering their attention more or what's garnering less uh, attention. It's important to be able to do this, to look at these fixation sequences so that you understand how things are structured and whether or not there might be errors in the way that you're structuring things. If something that might be, be should be prominent from the business goal standpoint, you could conduct the, the eye tracking and find out people aren't looking at it in that position. And if you conduct through an AB type of a, a, a test, uh, sort of enjoying that into your eye tracking, you'll notice that a different layout does give the type of, of viewability, the findability that the business is looking for, so eye tracking can help support what you're doing there. Now over to pillar number four, interaction and interface design. With interaction and interface design, this basically consists of a uh, several guidelines that are used to help optimize how you structure an interface. And it's funny, people think they, they get UI mixed up with UX and UI or, or interface design actually has a ton of <laughs> standards, uh, Bruce Tognazzini, known as Todd, has probably produced the, the most popular set of intera- inter- interaction design guidelines, and they're all tied into the interface. You really can't separate interaction and interface design. And, and don't believe the hype that some things don't have an interface. If anybody is interacting with it, then it has an interface. So we have to be aware of what the different principles are, what the different elements are that we should be paying attention to, because if we don't, then we can't, we can't really design a, a sound and successful user interface. So again, UI is commonly mistaken to be UX. It's not. It's a subset, as you can see. It is the fourth pillar as presenting it here. And it's important to know that heuristics help to guide proper interaction design. One example, as we're going to give you three more examples, but I'm going to mention color psychology. If you're wondering if that's a part of it, then you're, you're absolutely right. The first example we'll share is aesthetics. Yes, how something looks that is important to design. If you have a website such as Craigslist that looks god-awful or Ling's Cars that is god-awful known for being a terrible design, um, that does hinder the user experience. And the aesthetics play into the emotional design aspect and whether or not it's pleasurable, usable, reliable and functional. All those things are key. Those are parts of aesthetic. So an image, how it looks, how good an interface looks in total, how nice and how easy to understand and how pleasing a button might be in a mobile application, all these things are important. And as as Donald Norman once said, things that are aesthetically pleasing are actually, for some reason, they're perceived to be easier to use. They're perceived to work better, so you want to use that to your advantage. You don't want to have things that don't look good, experiences that don't look good. Example number two, something called Fitts' Law. And Fitts' Law is associated with the the proximity and the size of different elements on the screen, how close they are in proximity to one another. It it shortens the time to task if, if related things are closer together. So the size of buttons, is important in a mobile experience in particular, there are actually guidelines that specify how large a button should be. The proximity of a call to action button to the experience that a person was looking at, these things are important. So we want to be aware of how Fitts' law comes into place. And in our last example, and this is one that Donald Norman stresses, visibility. Have you ever been in a restroom where they have the, you're supposed to put your hands under it, and it sees your hand and it turns the water on. And have you ever used one of those and it just doesn't work and the water just won't come on? Because people can't see where the element is to place the hands. and So you end up wrestling with and putting your hands in different places. So based on the element of visibility with interfaces, it is, it is said that we need to expose any navigational item that is a navigational item on the faucet. We don't want to conceal navigation when we don't have to. We shouldn't hide navigational elements. We shouldn't we shouldn't bury them when in cases when it could be presented for everybody to see. This is really important. Seeing a Google microphone on a mobile phone so that you could use the Google assistant is an example. And visibility is directly related to findability. So if somebody can't see where something is, they're going to have a hard time finding it or they're not going to find it at all and there is something called an annoyance threshold. So if a person gets frustrated too much, they will abandon the experience. So you don't want to, you don't want to uh, facilitate abandonment, you want to facilitate usage and usability and you do that by embracing visibility in your interfaces. So we mentioned those are your four pillars. Again, those are something we can cover in much detail later. But I did mention the cycle of excellence. No matter what the discipline is, everybody needs to follow this. Make sure that you define the discipline properly. Make sure that you embrace the foundational elements of which each one of these four pillars are part of UX. They're being forgotten today. They're being left off today. Some places where you go to learn, information architecture isn't even covered. But it's critical. And the findability is a key part of every user experience and information architecture supports optimal findability, then how can you do UX without looking at your information architecture? So you wanna embrace all of the foundational tenets of UX. Then you get personal about this thing. Evaluate your current state. How solid are you on a personal level with regard to each of the four pillars? Step four, identify your own knowledge and skill gaps. Where where are you lacking? So now you can identify specific areas that you can target for personal growth. Once you identify what those areas are, and where those gaps are, you start to build towards excellence in each one of those areas. And then once you do those things, you identify what those things are, you commit to personal maintenance because you're not just gonna achieve it and, you, and not pay attention to it again. I've been doing this for 25 years and I always have to maintain my knowledge and skill level and continue to build, find new things to develop and continue to build in those areas. And it might be funny to some people to see step seven, but step seven is to be patient with yourself. You're, you're not gonna get there overnight. Nobody did and nobody is. So make sure that you're patient with yourself so that you continue to grow, you continue to get better, you continue to broaden your knowledge, and then you can help mentor the next set of UX professionals, the next generation of folks that are coming along. So the cycle of excellence is really key. So by way of recaps and closing notes, UX is under siege. Uh, it might not be comfortable, it might not be fun to hear, but it's true that it is. To overcome this siege, we have to make sure that we understand and walk in the basic tenets of the discipline, and those basic tenets are the four pillars, heuristics and usability, information architecture, UX research, and interaction and interface design. And when we understand what those four four pillars are, and we make sure to embrace the cycle of excellence and walk in that, use it as a governing set of of principles to guide our own UX careers by, we can get where we want to go. In this arena. And when we do that, we benefit the discipline as a whole. We make it better for all practicing UX professionals when we embrace that. So that is it for the presentation. Uh, And so I've got the floor open for Q&A, but but before we get there, I do want to share one thing for those of you, if you enjoyed this, you got a lot out of it. Uh, I'm everywhere. So you can tap into my podcast, The World of UX. Uh, new episodes come out each Tuesday. We're currently talking about overcoming the, ambig- the ambiguity uh, or the mirage of UX ambiguity, I, I should say. Um, you can find me on Twitter, at uh, UX Uncensored. Uh, there's a picture of my, my profile on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active out there. Uh, just have a brand new YouTube channel that's out there, the UX Censored on uh, YouTube channel. And we're gonna be putting more and more content out there. We just launched it, but more content will be available in the near future. And there is a UX Uncensored page on Facebook as well. So you can tap in. A lot of that information is coming through through uh, uh, Twitter, but there's also some, some exclusive information that I post there. And Not Pictured here is a new initiative In the Patreon network, so we're going to be putting some exclusive content out there in the not too distant future, and we'll be sharing uh, links about that very, very soon. So, uh, ready to share for Q and A?
1: Thanks, Darren. I think this is really insightful for everybody, and I'm just uh, while you're talking, I'm just going through chat. So, I I definitely thank everyone uh, today joining this UX talk and. Uh, As you mentioned, yes, uh, we definitely uh, me and Darren are planning for much more because this is a huge topic and uh, we cannot cover this entire topic in a one hour or something. But so today's agenda is like at least uh, people should start taking UX seriously. And definitely there is a lot of huge things to learn and definitely maybe in uh, couple of days or maybe in next week or something. We are we'll sit together and we'll plan how much and how we can come up with more uh, bigger programs like this uh, so let's uh, uh, Things we will share through our LinkedIn uh, LinkedIn on LinkedIn and other social networks. So yes, uh, I will just start now uh, question and answers uh, so please any questions you have, you can ask directly to the
3: Darren. Hey Darren, this is Vijay here. Hey Vijay, how are you? Being good, being good. I mean, I, I I have to admit, you know, it, even though I've been in this field for years, there's always something uh, new to you know uh, learn. And this yes. this entire one-to-one has, you know, one-on-one has actually. I mean, I've been just writing notes on this, on new stuff that I need to research on and Obviously, this is being great. I can I can never afford to miss any of your podcasts. So, thank you so much. Uh, quick one, uh, Darren. Uh, I, yeah. I just wanted to understand in terms of you know yeah, research or you know contextual inter, uh, inquiry and stuff like that in the COVID world, in the post post COVID world. How do yeah. you see that that happening? Given the fact that there is definitely limitation, uh, you know, uh, given the fact that we are in 99% of the case, we are actually not in front of the users anymore. So right. how do you see that?
2: It's, 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 it's interesting that I think COVID has helped. I, many of us, let me back up a moment. A lot of us have been, we're working at companies where we have been advocates for UX research. By default, we end up going to certain, certain tools that have a pretty hefty price tag on them (laughs) Uh, from a remote usability standpoint. And we don't, a lot of us, it's happened to me, several places I worked, where you just can't get the approval for five figures to get a user usertesting.com license or a user Zoom license because we know the UX professional knows the value of remote user experience, but you can't get the buy-in. So you end up, and there are some additional tools that are coming out where you don't have the five figure and you can do some remote usability testing but i think that the for the companies that have bought in and even the companies that 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 did not buy in previously not being able to get that data because you could not be in front of the user has really opened up the door to get additional buy in for remote usability testing i think it's it's the onus is on us now to find Whatever solution you can, to be able to conduct whatever kind of remote usability research you can, and notice I, notice I didn't say testing, just research. Whether it's going to optimal and being able to conduct card sorting, as mentioned during the talk, whether it's being able to do tree testing, uh, the the other packages that I'll have to provide some resources later. Uh, I'll do a, blo- a blog post more likely to talk about different. Type, I did a post actually on LinkedIn not long ago about a new usability testing solution that doesn't break the bank because it, it, it's frightening to go before your stakeholders and ask for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 American dollars for, for a solution. And then everybody's eyebrows go up and they pull back in their chairs because they don't want to spend that money because they, they all they see is the spend and they don't see the benefit. They don't realize it's going to pay for itself after two or three uses. Um, So I think that post-COVID, we're going to have, again, more buy-in for remote usability testing. And it's something that will open up the door because when you can get that data and you can validate your design direction, now the benefits of UX are more obvious. We're the ones that that save money. The, The development teams don't have to go and redesign things Four and five times because we get data up front that helps them to do the right thing. The first time, we can we actually save money where people don't have to call the support department because they don't understand something because the UX team was able to understand and identify that problem up front through research. So it, it, it's more about the, the there there's not a lot of adoption even though we like to think there is because we see companies conducting a lot of UX research. There's not a lot of adoption for it, but this, one of the, COVID's a terrible thing. I lost a family member. I lost a friend to COVID. It's a terrible thing. The, the, the numbers are just staggering. They bring tears to your eyes thinking about it. But one of the things that is going to happen for us is we're going to, somebody's going to buy into to. to Broader research efforts that require a digital solution, and I think that that's where we need to focus our attention and try to find these other solutions that don't break the bank, and see if you can get buy-in for them and go forward. Shout out to Usability Hub too; they they have some things that you can do, whether it's first click testing or things like that, and it won't break the bank. So, absolutely.
3: Thanks, Darren. I and mean, I, I think uh, you know the. Uh, an organization's maturity model, UX maturity model would also yeah. play a huge role in this. But yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so yep. much. And and Tushar, thanks so much for this initiative. I'm really look for, looking forward to you know uh seeing where this
1: you know gets headed in the future. Sure, sure, Raj, Definitely. Okay. I have one question from Sandra that uh can. uh so she's asking you that Darren share uh, any recent resource studies that give ROI info that can be shared to advocate for the importance of optimized UX. So that is a question from Sandra she's asking.
2: And to make sure I'm hearing correctly, uh, resources that help to optimize UX? Uh,
1: ROI. Uh, so any recent uh, studies that use the ROI info that can be shared to advocate? importance of uh,
2: optimizing UX. Oh, the importance of optimizing UX. You know, that, uh, that makes me think, I hope I'm answering this correctly, but that makes me think about reports. Um, some of you may not be familiar with the design management Institute. It just makes me think about that. They conducted some studies on the return on investment. What, what is it actually worth for the organization to invest in UX. And we're talking real UX. Uh, That's the one thing that doesn't get covered in that report because they published a report two times. If I remember correctly, the last one was 2016, 2017. They haven't published one since. And that's where they, building on what NASA and IBM did, that they said that the companies who optimize their UX practices outperform the competition by up to like 224% but this is real ux that they were talking about so since that report has come out thinking about what vj just mentioned when the ux maturity level is not high you don't get that rox or the roi you don't get it if if you have like i love what someone how someone described it once if you decorate your your company with designers that's not the same as having a strong ux practice you just have people occupying seats. Yeah, somebody just mentioned truckloads of accessibility lawsuits, oh my God. It's off the charts. I mean, uh, Beyonce got sued. <laughs> Some people get tickled about that. She got sued because of the lack of accessibility on her site, you know, who's thinking about that? So Optimal, you have another, there was a uh, an agency, that the name of the agency escapes me at the moment, but they did a a study that was similar to what the design management Institute did. And they talked about, had the ROI up to like 228%. So this is what a UX practice will do for a company. But if they don't have the right people in place, you simply don't get those numbers. So unfortunately, specifically speaking to optimization of UX, you won't find that study. I haven't seen it. Uh, maybe it's something somebody could dig into to chart. It sound like something like <laughs> could do, get, publish something on that. You don't really see it, but it is important that the right people be in the right places, and that's something that is starting to go askew. So that the early reports they're not parallel with what people are doing, and it's important for us to call that to call that out.
1: Uh, someone is asking
2: about uh, how much time should company need to invest in ux research that's a that's a great question and, I, and i'm looking at that question too how much time yeah. for ux research for design versus ui design versus development and 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 one of the things i love about that question is that somebody is separating them yeah. um <laughs> a, a lot, a lot of, they should be separate yes. uh, Researchers. Some researchers design. I, I'm fortunate that I work at places and they recognize my skill set and they just let me go willy nilly and I do everything. Um, but everybody's not that, not that. Um, how can I say privileged? They don't. They don't get to do that. So some companies you will have, especially if the company is bigger. The bigger the company it is, the more research, the more resources they have, the more you see things separated. The smaller the company is, the more likely you are to, to they, for them, they want you to be a unicorn in, in cases like that. And, and the unicorn is dangerous because you're basically doing four jobs and you're only getting paid for one. So you're going to get run in the ground. The company doesn't usually understand what UX is, but but they, they try to get you to do all that stuff, not realizing that if you split those jobs up between, or, or, or rather you combine them into one person, the ROI is is going to be diminished because the quality of research is less and the quality of design is less because they're doing too much uh jack of all trains they might even be a master of all but the truth is there's only 24 hours in a day and after eons that has not changed there's still 24 hours in a day you can't get more time it. so a company to get back into the question directly research is important because it informs design so i i won't put a number or a percentage on the answer, but you do need to engage in research, even if it's the same person. You engage in research, the research informs the design. The design, I wish I had included it or had a place to include this in the talk, but I didn't. But I will challenge folks, go out to images.google.com and perform a search on JJG five planes, just in case you're not familiar with the old classic Jesse James Garrett illustration on the five planes of UX design. He was the first person to write a book on user experience as we know it today. Uh, That book was published in, I think, 2000, 2002, round in there, still has merit today. And he separated each one of them. And the UI design doesn't happen until the research and the first phases of design take place. It's not until then that you know what the what the UI design is going to look like. And until you know what it's going to look like, the developers can't do anything. Even though developers are constantly trying to, to commandeer the design, it's going to be as we – here's my blatant thing. For people who know me, I'm very point blank. I'm very to the point. Developers can't design. <laughs> <laughs> developers can't you, – you, we used to joke about – we look at a design. Okay, did a developer do this or a designer? We would laugh at it because – Developers are happy because it shows up in the window, not because it's aesthetically pleasing. So they really, if, you, if you're doing it right, the developers shouldn't be doing anything until everybody else has, has got their stuff done and they know what they're developing. So again, we can't put a number, we can't put a percentage on it, but we need to follow that, that process if we want it to be correct.
1: Anyone else
0: have a question, please? We have a question from Katie on the similar uh, line. Uh, She's asking for a startup that has no budget for UX research. Uh, What is your advice on the most frugal way to gain users insights to help our direction?
2: When a company doesn't have the budget, and of course, we know these things exist, right? then that means that you're going to rely you want to you don't want to bring this is where I know people complain oh, I'm a junior I can't get we went through the same thing so that's just take your licks you're going to have to go through that but so uh, somebody starting up that doesn't have the budget they're going to have to spend a little bit more for someone that's either mid-level or senior because when you get that senior you get more in the, you get more for your for your for your money so now you're more likely to get a, a designer and a, and, a, and a researcher in one person. That said, that person, this is when heuristics come into play. If you can't do the research, you can do a heuristic analysis. You can design from a heuristic perspective. And so that person is applying uh, um, data that came out of research as heuristics. Yes, thank you, harm That is the name of it. Applying heuristics, so well, you can't do the research, but you can use research-based data by way of heuristics, and then you can still get to a good, sound solution. But you can't spend thirty thousand dollars on a low-end user, uh, user zoom. You, you can't do it. You can't even spend the money on an optimal solution. You can't spend that money either. But if you do, if you get somebody who knows their stuff, they can apply heuristics and they can find 70 to 90% of what's wrong with your design and you don't need to do the research. Hopefully, eventually, you would, you would graduate to the point that you can, but you can at least get a more senior person, and that's your best solution. Yeah, uh,
1: Michele is asking okay, uh, what one question discussion? Uh, what would you say are the minimum deliver, deliverables for UX courses once you target to do form a web application website
2: development in point of view? That See, time- the minimum deliverables, it's going to depend, it's going to vary based upon your team. That's something that's important to know. UX operation varies from company to company to company to company to company to company. to company. To company. It, it's, it will always shift. Uh, and so... In general, knowing that deliverables are basically a communication medium. And if you're, what is, how is your team structured? Do you have developers that are doing the work? So if you have developers, you're going to have somebody. It's either going to be developers, usually it's developers, developers, project managers, product owners, you know, who are your stakeholders? So your stakeholders. Determine how to communicate. What is their job? Who are they answering up to? Because we have to manage, UX people have to manage up also. So when you look at who you're communicating to, that will determine what you need to provide. If you're working with developers, you might have to develop the good old wireframe, which you don't, you hardly even see anymore. But wireframes, prototypes, and in your prototypes, then you have levels of fidelity. Is it low fidelity, mid fidelity, high fidelity? How much does it look like the final product? You might have to do, deliver mock-ups. If you're doing research, you will have to deliver, you will have to share that data. If you're doing formal research with a usertesting.com, it's, for, it's putting together the data for you, you just have to extract that data and you have to present it. So it, there's a huge range and again, if, if it depends on who you're who you're providing the deliverables to, what their job is, and that will dictate what types of deliverables you have to you have to to deliver. I will say, these days, for the most part, it usually is. I don't I don't see too many wireframes anymore. Folks are they're gravitating more toward clickable prototypes. Because back when I first started, it was common to do annotated wireframes which nobody ever read and that's part of the reason that they sort of disappeared. And you, <laughs> they would rather click through something to see how something works as opposed to reading something. Although you still might have to produce those wireframes because they still may serve as a point of reference for somebody. So, but clickable prototypes answer questions across wider ranges of, of uh, stakeholders, whether it is a, a, a developer, a product owner, a project manager, and an end client, if you have an end client that's gonna look at this also, that prototype helps to illustrate the flow, the look and feel, the functionality, and you can also use those clickable prototypes in usability testing. Even if it's guerrilla usability testing, you can still use those prototypes. So, and the higher the fidelity is, uh, I will warn you, for those of you that don't know, you don't want to present something that has high fidelity to stakeholders unless it truly represents where you're going. If they see something, they will go, oh, I like that. And if it was just an idea, now you're stuck. <laughs> so you, you don't want to show them something. <laughs> you don't want to show them something, let them see something high fidelity unless you got buy-in and we know that that's where we're going. If it is where you're going, no problem. And then they can see the, the clickable prototype too. So the middle of the road on all that is a clickable prototype, a clickable prototype, and so you got your Figma. And yes, I know some of you may, who are familiar with me. You know that I've been a big UX Pen guy. I am starting to fall in love with with Figma. I have talked to Figma. I wish that they had a way you could have an interaction with a form. You can't do that with Figma, but that's the only flaw I'm seeing. I am starting to love Figma, and I've used iRise, I've used Axure, I use UX Pen. If you go to o- O'Reilly and their Safari, you'll see that I did the, the 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 tutorials that are on the O'Reilly site for Just in Mind, but I am falling in love with Sigma. I am. Many people,
1: I think, started using Figma nowadays. Uh, any more questions?
0: Uh, yeah, we have a question from Ian uh, on the cycle of excellence. So he's asking, um, how do you see? the discipline progressing towards excellence going forward, and what role does the academic community play in all of these?
2: Let's see. With the the cycle of excellence, I think it's pretty sound and it stays the same. If there was one thing that was missing, it's to have your head on a swivel. And what I mean by that, because that's a phrase that might be more stateside, that means that you maintain a strong sense of awareness because the, the cycle of excellence, as I present it, it accounts for continued education. It actually is inclusive of that. I didn't say it specifically in those terms, but it, it accounts for that. What it didn't speak to necessarily was being aware if a new form factor comes into play, a new technology, a new, a new type of user experience that we need to be aware of. So, so that's the only thing that's missing. So if we do all those things and we understand how to define the discipline, we understand, and I'll, I'll bring it back up here. I don't know if my screen is still showing, but I can I can bring it back up, or can I? Actually, I don't think it's it's letting me navigate back back in that direction. I can do this. Here we go. Let's go there. There we are. So here's your cycle of excellence. If we make sure to understand the discipline if we make sure to define it properly if we make sure to embrace the foundational tenets remember that each one of those tenets had a and and a series of sub sub disciplines methods methodologies and deliverables so each one of those and then you had areas that were like like not really they didn't really fit but they were still part of the world of UX so that, that illustration continues to grow. So I guess, well, I did, I did include it when I think about it. Each one of those areas keeps growing. It keeps growing and it keeps growing. And so a new, I'm, I'm actually, I have a couple of updates that I'm about to do on, the, uh, on that illustration uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. So it just keeps growing. So we're aware, here's a new element, this needs to be added. Here's a new element, it needs to be added. So as we continue to pay attention to that, and then we continuously identify our own personal skills and skill and knowledge gaps when we as soon as you see that skill and knowledge gap you because nobody can do it but you you have to identify how you're going to attack that what am I going to do to expand my skill and knowledge when it comes to um virtual reality designing for virtual reality experiences what are what am I going to do I'm talking about myself personally because I've never had the privilege of doing work on virtual reality. I've never had the privilege of doing work on any augmented reality. Some of you may have, some of you may want to, but you're gonna need an opportunity, you have an opportunity to seize in order to do that work. So when that comes up, then you opt into it. And so as we continue to do those things, as we continue to expand our skill and knowledge and then share it with other people, that's what helps to build the ux community cuz you got your local ux community you have or you have your workplace ux community then you have your local ux community then you have your national ux community then you have your global ux community and so we all eventually overlap, overlap and linkedin provides us the ability a lot of us go back and forth i'm sure a lot of people on the call right now you know me we go back and forth a lot on linkedin and so we just continue to share that information. We continue to share our knowledge and we continue to build the community. And uh, I'm going to say this too, fight against the things that don't contribute to the community that do not help. We got to shoot those things down. I can't be one of the only people out there doing it. We got to shoot that stuff down because if that stuff gains, gains momentum and it finds its way into our workplace, then we've got some problems that we have to deal with. So if something's not, we can't post things out there just and it's UI, it's visual design saying that this is UX. It's not UX. It's only a part of it. I, I did that recently and I explained in detail why it was not UX and then people just started attacking me. So we that's that's not a good thing. It's not that's not UX. You you failed at accessibility, you failed by not giving us context. How in the world is this even, even remotely qualified to be UX? So when we get out there and we embrace what what's really valid, then we build the UX community. And then in two, in 10 years, we can still be proud of something and we have something to, to hang our hat on. And we won't be like instructional design, which I saw fizzle into nothing. And that's when I transitioned into UX. I don't want to see the same thing happen to UX that I saw happen to instructional design where the world, the world of, of instructional design got flooded with, with people who didn't have skill and knowledge, and it got reduced into a bunch of people creating PowerPoint presentations, and the science of instructional design practically vanished in the thin air, and you hardly see much instructional design. It's not big as it used to be. And the wrong people got all the positions, and now that's what's happening to us. Happening fast, too. I think we are
1: fighting for this very long, and hopefully, platform like, we we can use this opportunity for this, To, you know, we can hopefully soon we can have the UX community, which is a global community, and people will really should talk about this more. Yeah. Any question
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, from the same person is asking: uh, Is UX more on the psychology field?
2: Is UX more psychology? Is a part. It yeah. is a part of UX, and the more people, I mean, some people will get involved in the psychological aspect of UX in the beginning. I know people who have actually, they had a degree in psychology or sociology or anthropology and got into UX. What a phenomenal foundation to get into UX because those people have, they, that's another thing I love about UX because some of many of us come from so many different backgrounds And it helps to illustrate a diversity even within UX. One person came from instructional design. I came from instructional design. Someone else came from, I know a person who got their degree in sociology, and, and they're excelling today and doing fantastic research work. Another person was just a visual designer. One person got into UX, and they started as a developer. People are coming from so many different backgrounds, and it helps to make UX the diverse community that it is. And it gives us viewpoints. When you come from a different area, you have a different viewpoint than someone else. And and we put it together and then we have some, some just a combination that can't be beat. If someone wants to learn more about psychology, that's where Tashar has already done this for, for, for this resource by tapping into Susan Weinshank, who is one of the best, if not the absolute best person when it comes to understanding psychology as it relates to UX. She even has, uh, I've been hoping to get this certification myself for years. She offers a certification in brain and behavioral science. I highly recommend, (laughs) (laughs) highly, 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 highly. There's not enough space for me to say how many highlys in front of recommend uh, that I, for people to tap into that resource Uh, and her books that she's written on the same subject. Uh, I have a book, a recommended book list on LinkedIn. And one, if not two of her books is in that list. And she just updated one of the books. Uh, there's a book club that operates out of Amsterdam that, I'm, that I've am that i been a part of. I, I, I'm not a member at the moment. I'm going to set that up so I can connect with these people. And they go through UX books. And they actually read the books. And they talk, they have group discussions about the books. And when I attended, they were going through one of Susan Weinshank's books. She is an absolute treasure. A lot of the new people to UX don't know who she is because a lot of the, the a lot of the boot camps that we talk about a lot of times, and and again, I said it on my podcast last week, I'm not demonizing all boot camps, but a lot of boot camps don't do things the right way. The ones that do, you can tell because they'll introduce you to people like Susan Weinshank <laughs> and they'll introduce you to people like me where... A lot of them, I know people who've gone through the boot camps and you can mention Alan Cooper and they have no idea who you're talking about. We have to understand who the initial UX practitioners were. Alan Cooper will talk about things on the psychological side of things. Susan Weinschenk will talk about things. Even Richard Saul Werman will talk about things from a psychological standpoint. We need to know who these people were, what they contributed to UX if you really want to be a sound UX practitioner. As mentioned during the talk, there are standards associated with every discipline in the world. And there are leaders associated with every discipline in the world. And if you wanna excel in your discipline, you can't get there without embracing things associated with the people who laid the foundations with and established best practices associated with that discipline. So the Alan Coopers, the Susan Weinshanks, Jacob Nielsen, Nathan Shedroth, these people, we have to embrace what they brought to the table and a lot of them are still operating today, and so we have to look at what they're saying today if we're going to be good. And psychology is a is a huge part of it, because understand we UX professionals live inside of users' heads, so why not? Why not understand psychology? That's where we make our living.
1: Right. I think there are too much too much to talk, and I think let's wrap up the things. I uh, once again thanks Darren, and as I just I just mentioned earlier, we are uh Darren and we are uh, soon. We are launching uh, bigger programs, and uh, we'll post it on LinkedIn so that uh, you can register for those programs. And definitely, uh, there are a lot of lot of things we are planning together, and we will release soon, uh, very frequently. Yeah, I think Priyanka, I think you can just conclude today and just give a thanks. You know, yeah, thank you, Darren for the um, very insightful
0: talk um and uh, thank you for arranging it um uh, so um we have our next talk is going to be on 12th of september and uh, karen Ziegler is going to be speaking on a, a true de- she's a true designer design thinker and um, she's going to speak on a very interesting topic uh, leading by design uh so the more details will be up on the linkedin page very soon so stay tuned and um i hope you liked the session and uh, yeah thanks. thank you very much for and, attending the session
1: thanks thanks levin and we will talk everybody. soon yeah thanks for having me yes, yes sir yes thanks
2: have a great day great evening everybody great. Bye-bye.
0: bye-bye thank you thank you Bye.